This is Becoming Inclusive from the Kaleidoscope Group, where we're thinking differently about diversity, equity, and inclusion for more empowered people at work. We're committed to real change, and that begins with real conversations. Welcome in. Hi, I'm Reggie Ponder, and welcome to another edition of Becoming Inclusive. I have the pleasure of co-hosting, as usual, with Catherine Banks of the Kaleidoscope Group. And then today, to, to kick off our discussion, is Brian Johnson. Now, Brian has an interesting background, all that stuff, and we'll get into that in a minute. Today's title, the thing that we're talking about is racism is easy to fix. It's easy, you guys, and that's why we have Brian Johnson here. Brian. When we talk about this topic saying racism is easy to fix, I know people are probably like scratching their heads and saying like, come on now, this is a problem that goes over 400 years and you're talking about racism is easy to fix. What what, what are we talking about, Brian? Yeah, no, it's a a great it's a great point. Um, It is easy to fix. Right. Uh, People of color, black folks. Um, did not earn racism, right? It wasn't earned when, when, when this 400 years ago, when this system was first put in place. Uh, black folks do not continue to earn it today. That's not why racism still exists, correct? Uh, it's not an earned issue. The issue is that there's a system that's being built, that has been built, that continues to be perpetuated, and the system uh, uh, allows for white males like myself to benefit, uh, the benefit of the doubt in many different things. Um, and it, it, do, it doesn't allow everyone to have the same opportunity or to have the same privilege that I do. So right. it's, it's easy to fix. The question is, do you want to fix it? All right. All right. So, so now that we have the premise, what I want to kind of back up just a bit. And one of the things that Kat says to me is that Brian has this really interesting background is that Let's back up. Let's okay. let's talk about no, no, no. what I say is Brian is very aware and I need to know how, how Brian became so aware. <laughs> Go ahead, Kat. No, no, that that's it. Exactly. Brian. I mean, the way you're speaking about it, it's so natural, it's so organic, but it feels like you have a level of awareness that maybe may not be as common. Well, I appreciate that. And it's, uh, you know, this has been my life's work really. Um, when I grew up in Oakland, California, uh, to those people who may not know, outside of Manhattan is probably the most diverse population on the planet. Uh, a whole bunch of different Asian folks, a whole bunch of different black folks, a whole bunch of different white folks. And across the Bay in San Francisco, the largest LGBTQ uh, plus population in the world in, in one setting in San Francisco. So so growing up, you know, my, my household, uh, you know, again, a white male, 100 percent white male. But we never talked about race. We never talked about politics. We never talked about any of those important topics. But boom, I step outside and I'm 53 years old. I'm an old dude. So, uh, you know, so so racism and discrimination in the workplace was legal up until the civil rights movement, up until 68, 69. And then it takes about 10 years for that to come into play. And so really by 1980s, where we really see the, 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 the effects of the civil rights movement and the effects of women being able to vote, of black folks being able to vote, and, and therefore, uh, in addition to that, rights uh, in the workplace. So my life, my, where I grew up is right in the perfect place and time. There's no, there's no more um, 
interesting uh, city, I think, uh, than Oakland, California, than the Bay Area. The region itself is very interesting. A lot of different folks there. So I grew up that way. But more specifically to your question, Kat, um, black, uh, uh, Oakland is a black city, predominantly black city. I live in Detroit now. That's a really black city. So uh, Detroit is not or Oakland was not as black as Detroit, but they're very similar. A lot of times people say Oakland is the, the little brother or little sister of, of Detroit, but whatever. So my experience, I was an athlete. I played Major League Baseball for 12 years. Um, I was uh, in baseball again for a number of years after that in the front office. So um, but when I grew up, athletics was like my thing. And so the best areas to play baseball was in uh, places that were black neighborhoods. Best place to play football and basketball were in black neighborhoods. So I was there and I grew uh, relationships with and great friendships with my teammates. Most of them were black. Sometimes I'd be in stadiums where I'd be the only white person there or teams where I was the only white person there, which was a fantastic experience um, as a white person to be able to go through that. And um, but hold, 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 hold up, hold so, up, stop, stop, Brian. So dude, I, I'm, I'm talking about myself. I'm getting, I'm just getting into it, Reggie. I have to have you go stop ahead. here because, because you, you made a statement that as you're talking about yourself, that that I, I would want to understand why would you say that's a fantastic experience when, oh, great. when you, when you look at. Um, uh, black folks talk about this all the time and 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 people of yeah. color who are the minority so to speak talk about this all the time being the only one in the room is not a great experience so sure. the fact that you would just say that it's a great experience i really want you to touch on that just a little bit so and i appreciate that how comfortable you seem to have been with that i just want to put that in there it seems like you there's some people that in those spaces to reggie's point would automatically feel uncomfortable but you seem to have embraced it yeah, so so another good question. So I'll try to answer both. So number one, uh, the the experience of being the only white kid in the in the area in the room. Well, let me let me stop real quick. So part of my my childhood experience, again, we're talking nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. I would spend the night at my black friend's house, several of them, but uh, they were there was a consistent theme in every one of the black houses. Not that every black house is the same, not saying that. But I'm saying in the ones that I experienced, it was the same where I wasn't treated as the white kid in the room. I was treated as part of the family. So therefore there was an affection there. There was a love there that I was, that I was given, that I was treated with to where I was part, I was hearing the, the, the stories of discrimination in real time from the sister, brother, father, mother. I was hearing about those real time and, and I was hearing about how white folks were, were treating black folks in real time there as a young kid. And my first reaction was like, damn, that's terrible. And as a kid, you know, I, I got angry and I pushed away from my whiteness. I was like, I don't want to be a part of this. I, you know, I, I'm not I don't do this. I don't want to be a part of this. But then as I got a little older, I did some more researching. So I I read, you know, Taylor Branch's uh, book, that even though it's a gazillion pages long, I read parts of it. And I and I and I watched things and, and I asked questions that had conversations like this. And I realized that there was a lot of white folks that helped out in the civil rights movement, that white folks, uh, some very few, unfortunately, Insanely few people, insanely few white people were a part of helping people get away from slavery. So white, uh, the white role in defeating racism has always been there. And so I recommitted myself that I want to be like those folks. I want to be like the guys that died, uh, the white guy, bloody white guy, bald head uh, that stepped off the bus where they were, they were being uh, brutalized. Uh, and I can't remember where it was, but uh, uh, iconic uh, civil rights movement picture. I want to be like those guys. And so that's kind of was my thing. But to, to your other questions to you both, uh, the feeling for me was I was embraced. 
I was embraced as being the only white kid around. I was embraced because I could play. I could kick your ass on the field any day, no matter what color you are, right? So, I, so I, that's how I would. I was embraced because I was good. I love that. I I, I love that. I love that distinction because the. The, the, the distinction is that the reason I think a lot of people of color have a problem with being the only one in the room is because they're not embraced, is yeah. that they, they don't feel like that they have agency, that they don't feel that their voice is being heard. And you're, you're man, you said two things that, that just really, the man, make me feel so good that you were embraced. But in addition to that, you said you were one of the, you felt like one of the family, so you were also loved. And right. and that's, man, that's, that's, that's powerful, Brian. So Thank you so much for, for leading me into that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point because I so uh, yeah, it, it was way before I was ever good at sports, right? I was embraced and loved by black families, and that that had a big impact on me, boy. It was because you know, getting really deep into this, uh, you know, my parents never really they weren't, you know, they were great. I had a great childhood, loved my parents, but they weren't really good at showing their love and expressing their love to their children. That wasn't really something that they were really good at. And so uh, so when here I'm in, you know, a different family where the, the black vibe of the black family is embracing. And, and I was treated well being a minority in Oakland, in the athletic situation, in whatever. I was treated well also because black folks know what it's like to be the only one there. So they reach out and embrace as long as I'm, you know, as long as I'm as long as I'm cool, and I'm not an idiot. You know, if I'm an idiot, I'm going to be pushed aside. If I think that I deserve certain things because I'm the white guy or I'm showing that I'm above whoever is around here. I don't deserve to be here. I need to be with my own people. OK, then I'll get pushed aside. But I embrace the culture. I love the music. I love black folks uh, early on because black folks showed me how to love. So this is a deep, deep thing for me. So uh, so think about it from nine, 10 year old as a white kid to be able to have this education, have it done. I mean, the lens that I looked at life and people and situations and politics and and history from that point on as a 12 year old for the rest of my life till I'm 53 now uh, has been hugely impactful because race impacts us every single day of our lives. Wow. Wow. But, wow. but I don't feel strongly about this. It's a passing thought. That was such a, 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 a good way to give us a little bit about about you and and how you came to where you are because uh, I I I just couldn't even think in my mind that that could be a good situation, and you really outlined that that so well. So we said the topic is racism is easy to fix. Let, let's before we talk about the fixing of it, and I know people get really tired of hearing what what the problem is. You talked about the problem from a systematic perspective. And I like that a lot, Brian, because what what I find is that people people feel personal when you start talking and saying it's racism, it's systemic, it's uh, it, uh, you're racist. So all of, all of a sudden, that stuff is personal. You are talking about me and either I check out or I fight back. Uh, either th th those are the two that I that I see, and you might see see some other ones. But either I check out, be like I, I'm not listening to that nonsense. That that that's just a lot of noise. Or I fight back and say I'm not, and let me show you how I'm not. And I did this, and I did that, and I'm not racist. But the fact that you would talk about it from a systematic perspective, I think, is real important. Can you speak to that a little bit? Becoming inclusive is presented by the Kaleidoscope Group. 
your full-service diversity, equity, and inclusion partner serving clients worldwide. We can help you develop organizational change that actively engages everybody in your organization, turning resistance into energy and motivation for change. Let's talk about where you'd like to go and how to get there. Start with a visit to kgdiversity.com. I think, too, though, I just want to throw this in. I think there's also a group of people that are kind of in between. They don't know what to do or how to do that. Do they fight back? Do they kind of sit back? You know, they feel a little bit of tension. So I do think there's that third group of I want to do something, but I don't know how to do it and I don't know what to do. But And I think sometimes they get lumped in with the not doing anything, even yeah. though they, they do care. I like that, kid. Yeah, and great points to both of you. Uh, it, it can be complicated for, for, for my folks, right? My people, me. Uh, speaking to me, myself, right, as a white person, when you're talking about race, the initial thing is we, it's, it's the best perspective to look at race. And it, it can get complicated for white folks because we have benefited from this system, right? Uh, white males in power have benefited from the system as way it's been set up. How have we benefited? We benefited directly because of less particip- less com- competition, right? And being a sports background, the competition, you know, if you look at, well, Babe Ruth was one of the best players ever. Well, okay, but no black folks were playing baseball back then, nor Latino folks were allowed to play baseball back then. So the only, uh, uh, Babe Ruth was the best white player, and, and some people say he was black or whatever. Uh, Babe Ruth was the best white player. Uh, Joe DiMaggio was the best white player because that was the all that was the only Asian people weren't Asian people weren't able to play in the major leagues at that point too. So, if you look at it from a systemic standpoint, I didn't put this system together. I wasn't around 400 years ago. I wasn't the one that 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 uh, brought in Jim Crow laws after after slavery was was uh, rescinded. I wasn't the one that that did all this stuff. So, uh, you know, I have benefited from it, but it doesn't hurt me to say that I benefited from it big time. And it, it really comes into privilege, right? We've talked about privilege quite a bit in our work, right? But privilege is such a fantastic topic. I wish people, more people would be able to understand it because it, it really comes down to, if you understand privilege, then racism, as your title speaks to, becomes a really easy problem to solve. And how so? Because if I understand that I have physical privilege, right? I made a living with my body. I was able to make money by being an athlete. That's a privilege, I have a next door neighbor here that's in a wheelchair. He was in an accident in the uh, in the first Gulf War, a car accident in the first Gulf War. And so he's been in a wheelchair for, for the last 25 years. I have physical privilege and I notice it every time I'm around here. Does that make me feel guilty? No. It makes me look at my, my neighbors like, hey, how can I help him? Hey, I wonder if there's a way I can help him out. Hey, so I wonder if there's something I could do here. So I, I, love, I, I love that, ahead. Brian. And I want, I want to jump in is that that when we talk about privilege and you dimensionalize it in, in that way, it's so powerful to me. I, I worked at, a, at an advertising agency where a friend of mine, he was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And, and he, I never thought of him as the guy in the wheelchair because he could do everything by himself or whatever until I invited him to my house. Mm, he could not come in my house yeah. because the stairs I had, I got 52 stairs and there was no way that he could get up there unless we carried him into the house. And, 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 and it just dawned on me how privileged I was just to be able to bounce up the stairs right. every day and run up and down with no problem. And then I'm like, right. Oh, my, 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 my guy, 
the guy I really like. I mean, we we cool. He, he, so he, so he, let me ask you this, Reggie. For the rest of your life, do you look at uh, how to get into your house differently than you did before that experience? I look at how to get into every place differently there now. There we go. I, is that I look at when if I came over your house, I'd be like, they don't have a place for Glenn to get in here. That's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> and that's the beauty. That's the beauty of privilege. The the goal of privilege is just to be able to recognize when you have it and when you don't. It's very simple. That's it. If I'm if I'm going to work at Amazon tomorrow, I have zero privilege because I don't know where the bathroom is. I don't know anybody there. I don't know how they do things. But if I am working here at the Kaleidoscope Group, I've been with the Kaleidoscope Group off and on for 25 years. I walk into that. I have a lot of privilege because I know where the bathroom is. I know how these things function. I know how conversations go. I know how the organization works. Boom. I have privilege. So what do I do with this privilege? So it's one thing to be able to recognize privilege, but what do you do with it? For me, privilege is an opportunity. You have an opportunity to, 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 take, to put your arm around somebody else and say, hey, I'm going to take care of it. Hey, I'm going to look out for you. I wish we would all treat each other just like we would our kids, right? Because, Reggie, you know, you have family members. Kat, you have family members. So you, we all treat family members, and we all protect them, right? We're looking to make sure they're okay, making look sure everything's all right. We want our kids to have every opportunity to succeed. Why can't we look at each other as adults, whether you have kids or not? Why can't we look at each other and look at that in a protective way? And, and what do I mean by that? Lastly, I'll stop with this point. Is that we can't continue to vote for a system that continues to make this monster, this racism monster, it keeps feeding this racism monster. If we keep voting for the same thing, it's going to continue to be the same way. So that's why I hope for my white folks that, yes, it is important to be nice. Yes, it's important to be respectful. It's important to be inclusive in the workplace. But if you continue to vote and not vote for this system to be changed and upgraded and, and, and updated and fixed to where it's inclusive of everybody, your buddy Glenn, black folks, white folks, women, uh, Asian folks, internationally, other folks, if we don't fix this system, it's not going to get done. So it's very simple fix. Vote it's, for change to the system. It's really interesting because when you say vote, uh, I don't. I, I, that's that's from a political perspective, but there's also voting from what you do personally, and 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 I know that because you and I've had this kind of discussion. Is that what your your voice is your vote? Your right. actions are your vote. Your right. vote, your real vote is your vote. But but what I think sometimes people don't understand is that that you can do these things. Um, like you said, embrace somebody. Put uh, be like, oh, okay. Let me embrace this person. Let me let let me understand that I have privilege here, and this this person doesn't. Doug, our CEO, talks about uh, privilege in that in, in an interesting way. He gives this story about how his kids learned how to drive, as well as other kids learned how to drive. Right. So everybody earned their driver's license. Sure. So so it's not like because you had privilege, you didn't earn your driver's license, but his kid had five cars in the driveway to use. Sure. My family, we never owned a car in our lives. So we either had to go to the driver's ed place or 
we had to ask somebody, could they please take us out to drive? It was harder for us because we didn't have the privilege of those vehicles. And I just thought that that was good because there's that earned privilege and then there's unearned privilege. In this case, they earned everybody earned what they need, what they, uh, that, that driver's license. So we're not trying to take that away from you. Yeah. But people get really sensitive around what the, the subject of what's been earned, because right. if you're put in a position where earning something may be a little bit easier for you than somebody else, you know, someone's perspective is, did you really earn that? Or were you given the opportunity? Right. And that's where I think things get a little bit messy or convoluted because people are sensitive about that. Did you really earn that? How are you uh, measuring that you earn that? Because, you know, my uncle took me out in one of his five cars, taught me how to drive, took me the time, gave me the book, bought me the book where I almost would have had to try to fail mm -hmm. versus someone who's in a position where um, gaining that level of access to any of those things is difficult. So, mm -hmm. how, I mean, I think that might be part of where people have some contention with this earned, unearned, and privileged dynamic. Yeah, I, I would agree, but I would say that's kind of a secondary conversation of whether it's earned or unearned. I think the primary conversation, hey, I think the primary conversation is whether you have it or whether you don't, right? Yep. Whether I have it or whether I don't. That's a simpler way to look at it. Uh, it's easy to be able to identify. Once you understand that the dynamics of privilege, right? Physical privilege, mental privilege. Uh, I used to have privilege. I didn't have glasses, right? Till I was 44. Then I got glasses. So I didn't. I had privilege of not needing glasses. Now I need something to help me out. So just and, understand. And you had a privilege right now to afford glasses. There we go. My goodness. And look, we can talk about the the glasses industry a whole bunch here. But it's a it's a it's a they're stealing money from me. But anyway. Um, yeah, but if you just understand the simple part of it, when I do have it, when I'm a new employee or when I don't have it, I've been an employee for 10 years. I know where everything is. I know how this works. Whether you literally put your arm around somebody or figuratively keep those people in mind as you're creating rules for the organization, as you're having meetings, it doesn't matter if a black person is in the room, speak up for a black person or a, a person in a wheelchair or speak up for a gay person or a woman. If it's all men, it doesn't, you don't need these. So let me back up a little bit. Racism specifically, we talk about racism here. This is our problem. This is a white problem, right? Black folks didn't earn this, right? Uh, chauvinism is not because women earn to be treated less than men. Uh, the disparity in, in revenue, right? Disparity, women making uh, just as much money as men for the exact same job. We've improved over the last two decades in that. But women didn't earn that. They didn't get less money because they're not as good as the men in their job. It's just the way the system was built up. So if we're able to recognize that and acknowledge that, that's the system we live in, right? We, we, we acknowledge that we can't do anything about the weather, but it doesn't mean we, 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 we ignore the fact that weather exists, right? So racism the same way. This is a system that's been put in place. We need to update it, reform it, make sure it's more inclusive for everybody. Then we can really knock down the, the, the horrors and problems of racism. So, so what it's, I, what it's like easy to do. It's not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily overnight fix, but it's very easy to do. The concept is right there. There's nothing too much for us to handle. So I, I, I like where you're going, Brian. And it's so interesting because I didn't know that we were really going to get into this to this discussion of privilege. But I, I, I welcome the privilege to be able to talk to you and Kat about, about it. 
what we're going to do in our next segment is that we're going to talk real specific about how do we fix this this issue and you say that it's easy to fix and um i think it's i think it's much much harder than you put out there that it's easy to fix so let's get after you let's do it we're, we're going to come back in just a second and we're going to talk about a little bit about uh how, how do we fix this problem sounds good Thanks for joining us, and a special thanks to our subscribers. Consider becoming one today. Becoming Inclusive is presented by the Kaleidoscope Group, your full-service diversity, equity, and inclusion partner serving clients worldwide. Learn more and continue the conversation at kgdiversity.com.